Amen. You can go ahead and grab your seat, and uh, you can open your Bibles to the book of Joshua. Joshua. We're going to the Old Testament for the summer. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, the sixth book of the Bible. And uh, we're excited. We're going to take a break from the book of Romans. We've been there for quite some time. And uh, summer is a fitting place to kind of take a break and maybe look at something else, look at something new. So we're going to do a 13-week study through the book of Joshua that I trust will be a, a blessing to you. It's already been a blessing to me as I've had a chance to study it already in preparation even for this morning. Well, technically, summer begins tomorrow. Tomorrow, right? Is that right? Tomorrow is the first day of summer? But it, it kind of already feels like summer, doesn't it? Especially as we sit out here. It's, it's, uh, it's beautiful. And I'm reminded that summer is, uh, for many, especially if we live in Canada, where we suffer from incredible cold for most of the year, summer is a time of great rest and refreshment and renewal. Many of us find this uh, an important season of rest to be able to get away from the busyness of life from the normal day-to-day rhythms and routines we we get off somewhere remote or somewhere that we find enjoyable and refreshing we do things that are relaxing we take a break from school kids it's good times right parents i think you're probably ready for a break from school too we get to a vacation spot maybe We visit with friends. We make the most of the time. And as we do that, and as we even think about that idea, I want to remind you that rest is good. We need rest. God gives us the sweet gift of rest. We're designed by God to need rest and enjoy rest. He built it into the very rhythm of creation on the seventh day. Rest is good. And the book of Joshua is a book actually about rest. It's a book about rest, but interestingly, it's a book about conquest. It's a book about conquering a land. But those two ideas, conquering and rest, are actually tied together in this book. The one cannot come without the other. Rest is in the book of Joshua, is a byproduct of conquest. At this point in the biblical narrative, we get to the end of the Pentateuch, the books written by Moses, the first five books, and Moses has delivered in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy a sermon to the people of God. He stood on the banks of the Jordan River, and this is where the people of God are right now as we look at the book of Joshua. They're standing on the east bank of the Jordan River, And over the Jordan River, they are gazing out at the promised land of Canaan. And as they gaze at this land, they understand that this land is filled with enemies. It's filled with enemies of God. And yet God is calling them to go forward across the Jordan and to receive all that God has promised to them, everything that he has offered to them by his grace. They must receive God's promises through active faith. The promised rest comes only when the battles have ended and the victory has ultimately been won. When no enemies remain to threaten Israel, 
to threaten their occupation of the land and to threaten their worship of the one true and living God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And in order to experience this rest, they must trust God and obey God to do everything that God has called them to do and experience all that God has offered to them. And to do this, listen, not in their own strength and power, but by his. Let me put it like this. This is a book that's filled with rest. The rest is yet to come. And yet what we find out in this very first chapter is that the people of God must learn to rest in God now so that they can experience the fullness of God's rest later. And this is the exact same reality in the Christian life. God calls us to find rest in him now, knowing that ultimate rest is still yet to come. And by the way, as we look at the book of Joshua, and you're wondering what this has to do with the Christian life and what the parallels might be, I want you to consider this. The Christian life and the mission of the gospel, the Great Commission itself, is a mission of conquest. Not of physical conquest, but of spiritual conquest. Not of military progress, but of spiritual warfare progress. We are called as the people of God to be advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about this. Listen to the parallels. Taking it to every tribe, nation, and tongue. With Jesus, our great captain who has conquered our great enemy, as Colossians 2 says, has disarmed the rulers and powers of this world. We now follow our great captain, Jesus Christ, on a mission to conquer the world. Here's what I want you to see. The gospel and the church of Jesus Christ is ultimately all about world domination. It's about seeing, listen, seeing sinners who are lost trapped and dead in their sin, rescued from the grip of Satan, rescued, listen, from the destiny of hell and transferred into the kingdom of the beloved son of God, Jesus Christ. We push forward in the gospel into enemy territory, knowing, listen, knowing and clinging to the promise of God that he, Jesus Christ, will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And all the while, listen, as we move forward on this mission, we are waiting for the day of our future inheritance where we will one day dwell, listen, in the presence of God for all eternity. This is ultimately what the book of Joshua is all about. It's ultimately what the book of Joshua is pointing towards. And the book of Joshua is filled with many familiar Bible stories like Rahab and and the walls of Jericho that come crumbling down. It's filled with good examples and bad examples, with good morals and bad morals to be avoided. It's filled with deep theology and, and often some confusing theology that needs to be sorted out. But ultimately what I want you to see as we navigate this book together is that the book of Joshua is pointing us toward Jesus Christ. It's pointing us towards God's grand plan to redeem humanity and recreate the world. It's reminding us, listen, that our God is a God of rest. He promises rest to his children. And there is a rest for us now and a rest that is yet to come.
like Joshua and the Israelites, right now, we need to embrace our rest. And here's what I want you to see first. Our rest comes from the permanence of God's prominent promise. Verses one through four, let's read them together. It says this, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. This is a phenomenal promise. And to grasp the point of this book, we need to understand the broader context of this promise. And we need to understand what exactly is going on here. You see, this first section reminds us of what God has done in the past and what he's therefore going to do. By the way, the first nine verses are kind of a a monologue. If you'll notice this, it's God speaking directly to Joshua. Israel is about, as I mentioned, to enter into the promised land of Canaan. But before they could conquer and possess the land, God had to prepare their leader to lead them well in accordance with God's truth. Many have seen this book as a transitional book. And we're seeing a shift take place where Moses led the people of God out of bondage in Israel into the wilderness For 40 years now, Moses has died and a new leader is being brought to the surface. God is preparing Joshua. He tells, in one sense, Joshua, he reminds him of the story of God's faithfulness to his chosen people. He reminds him that God had promised through Moses to give them a land that is flowing with milk and honey. It is a place of prosperity. It is a place of plenty. It is a place of joy. It is a place of safety and security. It is a place where they can dwell with their God and their God can dwell among them. And God in his kindness and grace, listen, is marching them into the promised land. The promise that was first given in Genesis chapter 12 and 15 to Abraham. Promise of a land. But really the promise finds its roots in the soil of the Garden of Eden. The original land that was given to the sons of God, to Adam and Eve. The original land that was lost in the fall because of sin. This ancient promise that God has made to his people is about to receive its contemporary fulfillment here in the book of Joshua. But the context of the promise is so important to grasp. In verse 1, after the death of Moses, again, Moses had led the people for 40 years in Egypt, and before that, he led them out of bondage in Egypt. Moses was unique amongst the prophets. The book of Deuteronomy says that there was not a prophet like Moses, nor would there be. 40 years earlier, Moses had sent spies into the land of Canaan. 40 years earlier, they were at this exact same spot. Think about that. They stood on the banks of the Jordan. They looked out at the land. God sent spies into the land to check it out, to scope it out. 
And the report that came back was that this was a place certainly filled and flowing with milk and honey. It was a place of plenty, but, but they were terrified of the people who lived there. And instead of obeying God, instead of being faithful and trusting that their God was greater than their enemy, they cowered in fear. Only two spies came back and said, let's trust the Lord. Let's go forward. Let's take the land that God has promised. Joshua and Caleb. Rather than cancel his promise because of their unfaithfulness, God told the people of Israel that they would wander 40 years in the desert, one year for every day that the spies were in the land. And the purpose of that was to remind them to trust the Lord. It was a disciplinary action, but at the same time, God was wiping out a faithless generation who did not trust him and did not believe in him. And once they were wiped out, except for Joshua and Caleb, this new generation would go into the land. Now God had chosen Joshua as Moses' successor. Moses has died, but I want you to catch this. The promise of God lives on. And they stand now ready to receive all that God has promised them, ready to trust this time, ready to move forward by the grace of God. I want you to notice this too as you look at this text. The task that God calls them to is humanly impossible. He's not calling them to something that they can do in their own strength. Remember, they're standing on the bank of the Jordan River. Guess what? There's no bridge over the Jordan. How are you going to get this multitude of people into the land? And once they're in the land, think about this. Here's this people, Israel, a small people, so to speak. And across the Jordan, there are cities, countless cities and, and walled cities at that, and armed cities, people who are ferocious and fearful of Israel. And so they're ready to fight. God tells the people of Israel to go. Conquer a nation that is filled with these walled cities, with armies, and with allegiances of kings. Joshua is being called in this moment to lead a military conquest and to defeat them all. He's not calling Joshua to do the possible, but to do something, or to do something in his own strength and power. He calls us, by the way, he always calls people to do way beyond what they are able to do in their own strength. This is how God works to put his power and glory on display. It's like Jesus calling the apostles. He says, go, you meager fishermen, go and make disciples of all nations. You go, you, you, you men, you obscure men who don't have much to offer the world, go and make disciples of all nations. You go and you conquer the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's calling Joshua to do the impossible. It's what God calls you and I to do today if we're in Christ. If you're a part of the church of Jesus Christ, God has called you to a mission that is absolutely, utterly impossible for you to accomplish in your own strength and power. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, God has called you to live a life and to live a life of faith that is absolutely impossible for you to do with any effectiveness on your own. We are weak vessels. There are not many mighty, Paul says, not many wise, not many noble. And God chose the weak things of the world. And he says to us, the weak things, 
He says, go take the gospel and conquer the nations. Go take the gospel and watch me bring dead people to life. Go take the gospel and watch me restore those who are broken and lost. Go take the gospel and watch me do immeasurably more than you could ever do on your own. I love how God especially calls leaders to recognize their own weakness and the impossibility of their task. And and we have lots of leaders, as I look across the sea of faces here, we have lots of people leading in different capacities. We have people leading in ministries. You have people leading in their jobs. And and we have parents who are leading in their homes. God is calling you to a task if you're leading in a gospel way that is beyond your strength and your ability. But let me speak to fathers since it is Father's Day. Father's Day is the day where I like to say that we uh, rebuke fathers for not living up to the standard of God's word. Let me instead uh, encourage you. Let me encourage you to be the kind of men who lead in your homes well, but who recognize this in your own weakness, who recognize your need for God's help and God's strength, but you also recognize the calling that God has placed on your life. God has called you to lead, to point your family continually to Christ, to lead by way of example, your time in the word, your devotion to the Lord, your devotion and commitment to the church of Jesus Christ. He's called you to live within your home sacrificially as a servant, loving your family as Christ loved the church. He's called you to lead your family in family worship. He's called you to lead your wives and to love them well like Jesus. He's not calling you to do the possible He's calling you to do the impossible. Now, I want to just make a quick observation here. You have not received the promise that Joshua was given. Uh, You will not get everywhere your foot goes. Okay? You can't name it and claim it. This is not what this verse is about. But you have received promises from God. Not about starting an earthly kingdom, but advancing a spiritual one. The permanence of his promise remains. And we must choose to respond in faith. And as we do the impossible, I want you to notice this. Our rest comes secondly from the power of God's presence. You're like, okay, Ian, I can't do the impossible. How do I do it exactly? Look at what he tells Joshua next. Verse 5, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Here it is, listen. Just as I was with Moses so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do all according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Listen to him say it again. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The call, did you notice this, to be strong and courageous is grounded in the power of God's presence. 
It's the very reason that he can be strong and courageous. And by the way, he had every reason to be fearful as he looked at his enemy. He saw how inferior he was and how inferior the army of Israel was compared to all of the people he would have to face. This is where true power is found in the Christian life. It is in the very presence of God and God's presence in us. Both verse 5, notice this, and verse 9 reference God being with him. And that kind of forms a bit of a bookend to this little paragraph here. And it it kind of tells us what's going on. Everything else God says between these two bookends speaks to accessing the power of God and thereby experiencing success and prosperity. Now again, I want to be very clear on this. God's not promising him prosperity as if he's going to get rich. This is not a verse that can substantiate the prosperity gospel, that God just wants you simply to be happy, healthy, and wealthy, that God is going to bless you with earthly riches. That's not what this verse is saying. Instead, this verse is telling us about true success in God's eyes, true prosperity in God's eyes. You see, success in God's eyes is about accomplishing the task that God himself has given to us. What he's been called to do is to go forth and conquer a nation. And you see, success comes when your focus is on God and your relationship with him. Not when you're focused on yourself and what you can get from God. Let me say that again, that's really important. Success comes when you focus, your focus is on God and your relationship with him. The success then is granted by God, not attained by human achievement. It's not a byproduct of your own ability, your own strength, your ability to bootstrap your way through the Christian life. It is about intimacy and nearness to God, and it is about Him giving the blessing. So let me just draw out a few thoughts for us from this passage When it comes to spiritual success, listen, spiritual success, which I hope you all want, you should want spiritual prosperity and spiritual success in your life as I do. Spiritual success comes through three commitments. First commitment here, total dependence. Total dependence. See, what made Joshua able to tackle the task that God had given him? It was not his talent and abilities. Those aren't referenced at all. It wasn't his own strategies or his creativity. Those things aren't drawn to our attention in any way, shape, or form. It was the promise that God was with him. He only needed to believe that. He needed to rest in that. He needed to trust that that was true, even when it didn't seem like it, and even when it didn't feel like it. Even when God was asking him to do things that looked utterly ridiculous to the watching world, so to speak, which he's going to do. He's seen what God has done, remember. He's seen what God has done through Moses, He knows God's track record, faithfulness, and power. Parting the Jordan was not a problem for a God who had already parted the Red Sea. And that's a great reminder for us, listen, because we usually forget to depend on God when we forget what God has done. When our problems become bigger in our minds than 
the bigness of God, we usually stop depending on him. We start trusting ourselves and our own abilities. In the early church, God wanted to make it clear that the mission that he was sending them on was not about their own abilities and their own strength. It was only about what he could provide. In fact, in the book of Acts, we find out that the early church is gathered. If you remember, the church is, uh, Jesus, excuse me, is giving his kind of parting words to the church. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, listen to what he says. It says, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still looking for a physical earthly kingdom, and he's trying to tell them that it's spiritual in nature. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but listen to this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You see, you have to wait. Don't go, don't go yet, he tells them. The Spirit hasn't come and if you don't have the Spirit, you can't accomplish the mission. But once the Spirit comes, once he lives within you, you have everything you need to carry the mission forward and to see spiritual success. He's calling us to total dependence. You can't complete the mission without my power. And church, we have been given his very power. This verse, by the way, I will not leave you or forsake you, is repeated in the New Testament book of Hebrews. We're told that he will never leave or forsake us. He is personally with us. Matthew 28 on the mission. This is, listen, this is the hope for the church. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's not just a verse to comfort us. That's a verse to empower us. Where is the sense of God's presence in your life? Where is the sense of God's presence in your ministry? Are you depending on the presence and power of God? The first step in all spiritual success is total dependence. You say, what does this look like? What does this kind of dependence look like? I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like a life of prayer. It looks like a life of prayer. This is what the early church does in the first chapter of Acts. You want to know what they do while they wait? They devoted themselves to prayer. And church, listen, we are people who devote ourselves to prayer because we know that apart from him, we can do nothing, amen? That unless God shows up, nothing of any value or spiritual progress is going to happen. And we want God's power to be at work. We want God's glory to be on display. The second commitment for spiritual success is this, transformative discipline. You'll notice here this section is, is deeply rooted in the commitment to the word of God. He gives him this charge, a, a charge, a promise of success that's conditioned upon a proper response. You see, total dependence is always manifested in transformative discipline, the kind of disciplines that lead to true life transformation. You actively pursue the Lord. It's not a let go and let God kind of dependence. It's a leaning into God kind of dependence. And the context here is very clear about what is 
to be the key to Joshua's success. Look at verse 7 and 8. Here's the key to to success. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Sounds like Psalm 1, doesn't it? So that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then it will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. You see, his focus, his focus is to be on God's word and God's will. Then, as he leads Israel in taking the land of Canaan, success will come. The key to success for Joshua is that he was immersed in God's word. And this is amazing, by the way. First, he tells him to listen to a book. And I want you just to think about how strange this is in one sense. The book that he's referring to is the first five books of the Old Testament, the books written by Moses, the Pentateuch. But, but listen to this. He tells Joshua to listen to a book. How does he tell him to do that? He's speaking to him audibly. And that's instructive for us. You want to know what he's not saying? He's not saying, okay, okay, Joshua, once you get out there and you're in the heat of battle and you need wisdom from me, here's what you do. Go find yourself a quiet spot on the field like this, okay? Go sit there under a tree and just wait for me to speak to you. It's not what he says. He says to him, he says, no, no, no. Go to the book. Go to my revealed word. I have given you everything you need for success. It's right there in front of you. It's right there in your hands. All that you need for spiritual success and prosperity is right here in this book. Listen to this book, he says. Give yourself to this book. Don't let it depart from your heart. Don't let it depart from your mind. And don't let it depart from your mouth. One author says it like this. Godliness is neither painless nor inevitable. Christian spirituality, therefore, presupposes the practice of spiritual discipline. The life of grace, he says, is nourished by the means of grace. J.C. Ryle, he wrote this. He said, private religion, that's spiritual disciplines, must receive our first attention if we wish our souls to grow. He says, by a disciplined devotional practice, our spiritual life is cultivated, it's corrected, and the whole of life, he says, is improved. That's success, that's prosperity. That's what the word of God does in your life and in mine. The way God guides his people is through this book. It always has been. And when you live by this book, you will have great success. You will prosper. Dads, let me encourage you today on Father's Day. You can't teach what you don't know and you can't lead where you won't go. Let me encourage you, men, listen. Let me encourage you to be men of the book. Let me encourage you to be men who immerse yourself in the word of God. Who love the word of God. Who lead your families by the word of God. But everyone, listen, this isn't just for men. I know I'm singling them out. But all of us are a people who must be immersed in the word of God. We must read it. We must study it. We must memorize it. And we must meditate on it. And let me encourage you. This should be a daily practice in your life. You want God to bless you every day. Amen? You want spiritual progress and, pro- and success and prosperity every day. Amen? All right, get in the word of God every day. 
Draw near to God through his word. Watch how God blesses your life. Lastly, it requires a commitment to trusting deference. That's just a wordy way. I had to keep the outline paralleled. It just means obedience. <laughs> it's just obedience. But you see, obedience is, is a deference to God in a way that demonstrates trust of God, isn't it? God, your way, not my way. Your will, not my will. I've got my thoughts. I've got my opinions on what I ought to do or where I should go. But God, I want what you want for me. So when it's hard, God, and I think I know best, I'm going to lean into your word. And I'm going to let your word teach me and instruct me and correct me and drive me. I, I love this. He says, being careful to do, in verse 7. And then he says in verse 8, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Listen, loved ones, we must be a people who are so careful with how we not only handle the word of God, but how we obey the word of God. It's interesting that Joshua is not told to study military strategy. He may have. But what is vitally important for advancing God's kingdom is to obey God's word. The reason the church grows, listen loved ones, is not because we have new strategies, but because we walk old paths. Teaching people to know this book and to follow God's word like Joshua. The keys to success in life lie in being intensely focused upon God and consistent faithfulness to him and his revealed word. But that presupposes that you've been obedient by trusting him in the first place. What Paul calls the obedience of the faith, that you've actually looked to Jesus Christ, not just to fix parts of your life, but to fix you from the inside out. That you've looked to Jesus and you said, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I need your grace. I need you to radically change me. I need you to change my heart's desires, my affections, and my passions. I need you to forgive my sins. I need you to restore me. And God says, I can do all of that for you. I sent my son out of great love for you. He died on a cross to pay for all of your sins. He was forsaken so that you could be accepted and embraced. He rose victoriously from the grave three days later, demonstrating that he is the true and ultimate conqueror of our greatest enemies. And if we place our faith and trust in him, we can have true life and life to the fullest. And then, listen, the love of God that that produces, it requires an ongoing active response, a serious pursuit of holiness and obedience. Knowing all the while, as he reiterates in verse 9, do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Third and finally, I want you to notice this. We find our rest in the participation of God's people. In these next verses, 10 through 15, I want you to notice Joshua is simply repeating to all of Israel what God has told him. It says, And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. 
Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it. The land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered, all that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. And whoever rebels against your commandments and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. I love this. He just reiterates what God has first said to him. His leadership style was simply to tell the people of God what God said. Some things never change, by the way. I want you to see this. He is rallying the people to make sure that they are united. Rest is going to come when the people of God work together to accomplish the mission. They're united in three specific ways. You'll see that in your notes there. First, they're united in purpose. This is what he's telling them. Listen, God's told us we're going to go forward. We're going to be on mission. We're going to take what God has promised us. This is how we're going to do it. This is what God has called us to. He's rallying the troops. He's charging forward. And by the way, this is true for us as well. The chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, has set the mission of the church. In Matthew chapter 28, he said, Go therefore into all nations and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Son, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He's given us all we need in his word and by his spirit to accomplish this mission. We too are to be united in purpose. We want to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and matured people multiplied all to the glory of God. This is why we exist, and this is what we are going after by the grace of God. Second, we must then be united in perseverance. He rallies them together, and he says, listen, we're all going to help each other, and we're not going to quit until the mission is done. There is perseverance needed. We've got a great enemy in front of us. This isn't going to happen overnight. This is going to take lots and lots of time. In fact, Joshua would be an old man by the time this mission was complete. The condition for these tribes to possess their land is that they commit to finishing the mission. God's people must be committed to perseverance. The church of Jesus Christ faces much opposition. We have a great enemy who is still fighting against us and wants to destroy the work of God. But we've got work to do. There are people all around us, listen, in the neighborhoods around us, maybe even listening to us right now, who desperately need Jesus. People whom God has placed in your life to hear the gospel from you, specifically from you. There are disciples to be made, disciples to be matured, and disciples to be multiplied. God has called you and he's called me to roll up our sleeves and to jump in with both feet and to persevere till the very end, giving ourselves for this great mission to see the glory of God advancing from sea to sea. Here the people affirm Joshua's leadership. Did you notice that? And they encourage him in it. They're saying, we're with you, Joshua. We'll follow you. They demonstrate a desire to submit to him as their leader. They encourage him. Did you notice that? What I loved here too is they encourage him with the word of God. Only you be strong and courageous. 
Where'd they get that from? Well, that's what he told them God had said to him. So they just come alongside him and say, hey, we'll follow you. Just stick to it. Just, just keep following God. Be strong and courageous. Rest in him. Some of the greatest encouragement we can give one another is the encouragement to keep going. I get it all the time from you. I hear things like this, pastor, just keep preaching the word. Just be faithful. Just keep preaching the gospel, okay? Just keep doing what you're doing. And I can just that fuels me, that fires me up. And I want to say this to you. Listen, there are a lot of people leading you in this church, in ministries, in your small groups, people who are pouring into you and, and pouring of themselves out into just the, the community of faith and for the glory of God. And can I just say one of the greatest things you can do to build them up and to push them forward is simply to encourage them in the Lord. Just say, keep going, keep doing what you're doing, just keep being faithful. Lastly, they're united in purity. Did you notice at the end there, whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, why? Because it's the words of God. Whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. There is a kind of accountability built into the community of faith. And there is a strong hunger and desire to pursue the Lord. The unity of God's people and faithfulness is key, listen, to our success. When Israel is united in their faithfulness to God, they cannot be defeated. That's what we're going to see in the book of Joshua. But listen to this. When they are divided, they do not win. The unity of God's people and their faithfulness to him remains key for winning Canaan. And in the New Testament, listen, for winning the world to Jesus Christ. And that idea leads to this kind of closing idea, closing point outside of this text, the purpose of God's promise. We're going to end with this. We said that at the start of this book, this book is about rest. And I know what you're thinking, man, Ian, everything you just described there sounds like a lot of hard work. Like it's summertime, I was hoping to get a bit of a breather. But let me remind you, they had to work to enter that rest. That rest is said to have been given, by the way, at the end of this book. The rest was promised and the rest was fulfilled. In other words, they received what God said they would receive. Listen to this. At the very end of Joshua, you don't have to turn there. Joshua 23.1 says this. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years. Chapter 21, verse 43, listen to this. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. Listen to this. All came to pass. But what's really interesting, church, you say, well, how does this fit in with us as the church? The New Testament tells us that this conquest of the land and the rest from God was ultimately pointing towards something greater. It was pointing towards a greater rest, an ultimate rest, a rest that could only be found in Jesus Christ. In fact, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 4 says this, it says, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. 
And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. And he says this, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, that's the unfaithful generation in the wilderness. Again, he appoints a certain day, listen to this, today, saying that through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. It's interesting to note that Joshua's name was originally Hosea. Hosea means God is salvation. Excuse me, it means salvation. Moses later changed Joshua's name to Joshua, which means God is salvation. The Greek name for Joshua in the New Testament is Jesus. God who has come to be our salvation. God in Christ who has come to be our true rest. God who has come to take us one day ultimately home to the true and final place of rest. In God's kingdom, all of God's people, in God's place, under God's power, the fulfillment of God's promise, all of it fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The purpose of God's promised salvation is rest, church. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You must rest in God now through Jesus Christ so that you can experience the fullness of God's rest later in eternity with him. Come to Jesus now, today. Know the rest that only he provides and know one day the fullness of that rest to come in the greater land, the new heavens and the new earth where we will gather and exalt Jesus Christ when all the earth will declare the glory of God. Let's pray.